Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who, are, who will exalt themselves will be humbled. All who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Brandon Scott is a Roman Catholic who holds an endowed chair, New Testament studies at Phillips Theological Seminary. He is a former Barton Clinton Gordy presenter here at our church. For more than 40 years of his adult lifetime, he has studied the parables of Jesus. And in his latest book, he says, The world of Jesus' parables is usually that of a small peasant village. It's the world he knew best. That Nazareth of Jesus' time had maybe 250 people in it. He knows that world very well. But occasionally he tells a story about the big city, Jerusalem, and about the temple. It was understood that in the city, the temple makes all the rules. And that sometimes Jesus told stories to say to those who heard them, the temple is no longer setting the rules. It would cost him his life, of course. Let's look at this story about the temple rules. There was a man who trusted in himself that he was righteous, who said, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Dr. Fred Craddock, in his commentary on Luke, says, Every preacher loves this Pharisee. We need him desperately to keep the elevators running and the lights on. We need people who do good things. And this fellow did good things. 1872, I think seven years after the end of our great civil war, a baby girl was born in France. At the age of 15, she would enter a monastery. She would die at 24. We theologians, seminarians, know her by the name of Therese of Lisieux. She kept a diary. She wrote her life story. It was Monday, Thursday evening, after a very long Monday, Thursday, Good Friday looming the next day, that she woke during the night coughing. The rules in the monastery were lights out, lights are out. No relighting candles, no relighting lamps. She tried to muffle the sound of her coughing, holding her arm of her gown up over her mouth. When finally it was daylight and she woke, she could see that there was blood all over her gown. She knew it meant she had tuberculosis and that she would die. 
She did die. But her diary was collected, published in the form of an autobiography. And basically, she said in her diary to the prioress of the convent, I am a little person. I can only do little acts of kindness. One of her stories was about a Christmas Eve. All the family gathered around a very simple little tree in a simple home. Father had worked late. He came home all out of sorts. He scolded her because he didn't think something was in the place it should have been. And she wrote, I wanted to cry. But instead I resolved I would pray. That I would pray for my tired father who had scolded me for what I perceived to be no reason at all. Once, after she was in the convent, she heard of a notorious criminal who had been apprehended, tried, and sentenced to death. There was nothing she could do about any of that except to pray. She wrote in her diary that she prayed for this man every night someone she did not know at all, but before his execution came, he would turn his heart to the Lord and not spend eternity away from the God who had created him. She wrote little things, like one day she was scrubbing at the trough, the laundry trough at the convent, and an older nun kept slashing dirty water up onto her. I wanted to slug her, she wrote, but I do little things. I prayed for her as I continued to do my wash. I'm a little person. I do little things. That Monday Thursday, when first she knew she had tuberculosis, that she was going to die, there was no cure for her illness. The joy of going home to be with God... But within 24 hours, she wrote, I don't want to go home to be with God. I like it here. I don't want to go yet. And then she wrote, The joy of my salvation has gone, but I will keep doing the little things, the acts of kindness that I know. We need her. We need a good Pharisee. Number two, Luke explains this parable to you before he tells it. Dr. Brandon Scott wishes that he had not. It influences the way we read the story. Luke says, Jesus told a story to some who trusted in themselves for righteousness and despised others. If you look at that sentence in Greek, it tells you even more. It literally says, the rest... And the word that we have, contempt, comes from a Latin word. Some of us took Latin. Contemnere. Contemnere literally means to despise. That somehow he felt so good about these good works that he did that he despised the rest. Like the Greeks, if you weren't one of them, you were a barbarian. Dr. John Buchanan, I've mentioned his name to you many times. He gave our Barton Clinton Gordy series some years ago. He retired last January 1 from Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. 
It's one of the great Presbyterian churches in our country, one of the most beautiful church buildings in our country. It sits on that magnificent mile that Oprah Winfrey talked about on her shows. Dr. John Buchanan remembers when he first entered the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. He said, I'd grown up in a very conservative part of the Presbyterian church. I'd been taught that the world is depraved. You have to stay away from the world. It's depraved. I had a problem with that, he said. I love the world. But I had professors who taught me God also loved the world. That God created the world and called it a very good thing that he had done. That somehow it had always been there, this saving possibility of God. You see, one of the men who taught me systematic theology at SMU in Dallas was at the University of Chicago back at that same time. He was picking up on that same thing. And Dr. Schubert Ogden always taught us the saving possibility was there from the beginning. The saving possibility. It was always possible for Homo sapiens to trust God. And by trusting then to do what they believe God wanted them to do. It was always possible. And that when God despaired that the Gentile world had not listened to what the Jews were trying to say for 2,000 years, he re-presented the saving possibility in Jesus of Nazareth. Dr. Buchanan said the other part was that I really thought if I got to the seminary they would teach me what I should believe and I would graduate and know everything exactly what I believed. I knew other preachers who talked as if they knew everything and I didn't know everything. And when I graduated I didn't know everything. And at my age now he said I don't pretend to know everything. But I had professors At the Divinity School, University of Chicago, who taught me you don't have to know everything. You don't have to pretend to know everything. You just need to commit yourself to the one God who blasted these billions of stars into the heavens, revealed himself to us Gentiles in Jesus, whom we call Messiah, Christos, the Christ of God and follow him as faithfully as we know how. He said, I resolved to do that. I hope there were enough Presbyterians who would be glad to hear me in my sometimes confusion, but still pointing to the one and begging them to come with me. Let's follow him. Number three, what about that tax collector over there? beating on his breast. This is the imagery of someone who's grieving, grieving. In the Bible, people who are grieving beat their chest, tore their clothes to show that they were undone. And this man calls himself an hamartalos, coming from the Greek hamartia, which means to miss the mark. It's a term used in archery when one lets fly the arrow and miss the target at least the bullseye. I'm one of those. I've missed the mark. 
Gail chuckles at me because I watch the Food Channel and I'm not a cook. I also watch the Travel Channel. And one of the men I watch on the Travel Channel from time to time is Andrew Zimmern. You ever watch him? His program is called Bizarre Foods. I don't eat bizarre foods anymore. I grew up eating bizarre foods because that's the only food we had. We killed squirrels. We ate the whole squirrel, including the brains. I did. Not anymore. When we finally got to kill a pig, we ate all of him from the snout to the end of the tail, including pig's feet. I don't eat pig's feet anymore. When we had chicken dumplings, often the broth was made by boiling the chicken's feet. Gail and I don't do that anymore. So I don't watch Andrew Zimmern to see the bizarre foods he's eating. He's a jolly kind of fellow who goes to a lot of interesting places. Many of them Gail and I have been to, and I relive. Being in that city, in that country, in that place, I enjoy him. So I was surprised recently when I read that Andrew Zimmern was living a very different life 20 years ago. He's 50 now. He says he's 50. When he was 30, he was in a flop house in New York City dying of alcohol poisoning. He was a little Jewish boy at one time, circumcised on the eighth day, bar mitzvah at 12, but he'd lost his way. He wanted to be a great chef. He went to Europe. He studied under some of the very best chefs. Came back to this country and worked in New York City. But the world of restauranting had a lot of alcohol and a lot of drugs. And he participated in all of it. And he got hooked. Finally, when he was 30, his partner said, Andrew, we cannot have any more of this. You're out. He said, I had enough money to buy a case of vodka. And I took it under my arm into this flop house and thought, I will drink until I die. I drank vodka until I passed out, but I didn't die. When I woke up, I drank some more vodka to see if I could die. And I didn't die. But I passed out, and when I woke up, I drank some more. And I woke up, and I drank some more. And then one morning, I woke up, and something said, Andrew, call a friend. Make a call. And I called a friend. And he asked, where are you? I told him this flop house where I was. And he said, do not leave. I'll be there in 15 minutes. And he came and got me. And then, without my knowing... He called a few other friends, and they had what you call an intervention. And they said to me, Andrew, we have booked you into a rehab center in Minnesota. Here's your plane ticket. I'm driving you to the airport and putting you on the plane. And they flew me off to Minnesota in the middle of the winter. Said so there I was in this rehab center. I didn't like it. I didn't want to be there. I wasn't getting any better. I didn't have any alcohol and drugs. I didn't allow that. But one day he said, I walked outside, and I said, God, I need a sign. They keep telling me about you. I don't know anything about you. I need a sign. What would a Jewish boy ask for? I need a burning bush, he said. 
Could you give me one burning bush here? Instead, all I saw were the limbs moving with that strong north wind. I was freezing to death, and I went back inside, went to my tiny little room, and in came one of the counselors. And I said to him, I need a sign. I went outside and asked for a burning bush, and I got nothing. And the man said, Andrew, you're a chef. I got a recipe for you. He said, I don't feel like cooking. I got a recipe for you. It's called 12 Steps. You do these 12 steps, and you'll bake a cake. I took them one more time and looked at them. You've got to surrender as much of you as you know how to as much of this higher power as you can comprehend. And then to step two and three and four, I knew how to follow a recipe. I turned my life. I turned my life. You should see him now, if you, even if you don't eat bizarre foods. <laughs> Seems to be having a wonderful time. He has a wife. They have a little boy. He's traveling around the world, seeing things, doing things. He acts like he's really glad to be alive. Number four. Our translations, and we have a very good one that you and I use. Methodist Church thinks it's the best on the market for both accuracy and readability. Even so, in trying to make it readable for you, sometimes they, they miss little subtleties of translation. For example, when it says, and one of these men went to his house justified, well, in Greek, that's a passive voice verb. Now, those of you who studied a lot of English like I did know what a passive voice verb means. Something else is doing the action here, and that something else, of course, is God. God had justified him, that one who said, Oh, God, be merciful to me. I've missed the mark. I'm one who has missed the mark. And God said, okay, you get to go home set right with me. You get to go home set right with me. Julie Burns lives in Cookville, Tennessee. She has written that she and her husband were beside themselves they had been told they were about to have their first grandbaby. As they got closer, they were told it was going to be a little girl. They were so excited about that when her husband was diagnosed with cancer. And even though we did everything we knew how, took him to the finest doctors we knew, and hundreds of people praying for him, it was a real race. Would he die before the baby was born? Would the baby be born before he died? I've been there. Fourteen years ago this month, we were there. My father was dying. My older brother and Allison were expecting their third child. Gail and I were going down every other weekend to see about my dad. And he would ask, how much longer till the baby comes? About three weeks, Dad. Okay, okay. How much longer till the baby comes? Well, a few days, Dad. Okay. And we could say to him on October the 20th, Josh is here. He's wonderfully healthy, and Allison's doing great. My dad smiled. 
A week later, he died. Exactly seven days later. Fourteen years ago, yesterday. Okay, we've been there. Well, the baby came, and then Julie's husband died a few days later. She said, I I think maybe this precious new baby named Paige, I thought somehow maybe I better love her twice as much because her granddaddy's gone. But I did love her twice as much. I've been a seamstress all my adult life, and the most fun was making her a new dress. When I could, I'd take her to the fabric shop with me, and I would say, Paige, what would you look like with a dress made out of this? would put these kind of buttons, this little bit of trim, this little bit of lace, and her little eyes would sparkle. Some days I went shopping by myself and I'd look at these fabrics and think, oh, our little page would be so beautiful with this, and I'd buy it and take it home. When Paige was three, she was diagnosed with cancer. We, were, we took her to the best doctors. We had hundreds of people praying for her when she was four. She died. I closed the door to my sewing room. I couldn't go in. Every time I thought about her, I thought I would suffocate. I couldn't catch my breath. Weeks passed. Months passed. One day I went to the women's meeting at my church. The program that day was about a horrible earthquake that had just hit Haiti. About all these families who were now homeless. Specifically, my women's group had decided they were going to make dresses for little girls who had nothing to wear. They had the patterns there. I couldn't pick mine up. I couldn't. I looked at the woman next to me. She had taken her pattern out. I could make, I could make that dress. I've made that dress most of my adult life. I couldn't. I stuck the pattern that had given me in my purse, excused myself. I got in my car and drove away. I thought I was suffocating. All I could think about was my little page. I was looking forward to making more dresses for her, and she was gone. She was gone forever to me on this earth. But I couldn't forget the little girls in Haiti. I thought I could see their eyes. When they got a new dress, I finally opened the door and went into the room. I took out that pattern, and I started to sew. There was a man who decided he could be set right by the grace of God. And maybe with God's help, he wouldn't miss the mark 